it's basically a walk through Revelation, and that's what we're going to be kind of doing, just walking through. And there's going to be a lot of connections, a lot of different avenues. We'll make some right turns, some left turns. We'll be checking this out, checking that out. But overall, it's just a walk through Revelation. And as I say, it's complex, but it's really not, in my view, complicated. Um, so a couple of things I want to... This is the way I interpret, and I know that, and Mark and I uh, have gone over this a little bit, but um, as you know, there are a variety of ways to interpret the Bible, period. Um, most people, most people, when they look at the Bible, they will understand it in its most plain and ordinary sense. And most people will do that and then some people, when they get to areas that deal with eschatology, all of a sudden they don't do this anymore. All of a sudden, because they see symbolism and allegory, they stop doing this. And so my perspective is that you always do this. Always. Um, even in the areas of eschatology. And let me give you one example of that. If I said to you, if I sat down at your dinner table, and I said, man, I could eat a horse. You instinctively knew that I was actually not saying to you, when are you, when are you going to be serving me a horse? What I'm saying is what? That you're hungry. I am so hungry. And it's just a colloquial expression, a figure of speech. Um, and, and we do this all the time. And that particular figure of speech has one meaning. That's it, one meaning. Um, I remember when, I, when we were living in California, as you can understand and imagine, Spanish is huge there. And um, I remember I was talking with some Hispanic colleagues of mine, teachers, and I remember them saying to me something like, which translated in English to, they're a quarter. And I said, what? What? What does that mean? They're a quarter. Is there a quarter? I literally thought <laughs> there was a quarter on the floor. And they said, oh, no, 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 no. It has nothing to do with that. It's just a figure of speech. And to this day, I still don't quite understand what they meant because I didn't, I wasn't raised in that culture to understand the particulars of that. And I think if I had heard it more and, and got more of the gist of the conversation, I would have been able to pick it up. But even in that sense, that phrase, there, a quarter, only meant one thing. So as we go through the book of Revelation, I want to make sure that you understand, from my perspective, we're going to be looking at Scripture and understanding it in its most plain and ordinary sense. Just like having a conversation with someone, even if they're including colloquialisms or figures of speech, you generally can get a sense of what they mean. And if you didn't know what they mean, you go, I'm sorry, what would you say? Or what do you mean? And they would explain it to you. So that's what we're going to do with Scripture. So we're going to take every word, every phrase, at its primary, ordinary, usual literal meaning, unless, unless the facts of the immediate context studied in the light of related passages, I'm sorry for the verbiage, and axiomatic and fundamental truth, in other words, unless this stuff gives us a different indication. For instance, if I said to you, what is the definition of the word left? You wouldn't be able to give me the definition because you first of all have to say, well, which left are you talking about? 
if I said I have $10 left in my wallet, you would say, oh, you got, that's what you've got remaining in your wallet. If I said, take a left at the next street, you know that that, that has to do with the direction. If I said um, the right versus the left, you know that that's political, politics, and where people stand on a political perspective. So in order to understand what the scripture is telling us, every word, every phrase, every verse, we will take it in its primary, ordinary, usual, literal meaning. And what I love about Revelation, especially, most of the time, when the symbolism is used, it's explained later on in that chapter. There are a few cases where it isn't, but it's still explained in other portions of Scripture. For instance, when you get to uh, Revelation 12, and it talks about the sun, the moon, the 12 stars, that's not explained in that chapter. You have to go all the way back to Genesis to find out what that means. And it's, it's fascinating, and that's the thing I'd like to also emphasize is that even though there were 40 human authors for this, written over a period of 1,600 to 2,000 years, there's one main author. We know that. We have no problem with that. God wrote the whole thing. So does it matter if he is Fred Berubo to write it, or not me, but like Paul, or Hosea, or Joel, or Dave? doesn't matter. It makes no difference. He used them. He allowed their personalities to come through a little bit in the text, but ultimately it was what God wanted to write down. So that's what we're going to be looking at. And that's how we're going to figure out what each section of Scripture and Revelation means. Now, we could get really bogged down in all kinds of minutia, and I don't want to do that. So what I will do is kind of go and it's instead of it being a word by word we're going to be going verse by verse but we most likely may also be doing kind of paragraph by paragraph meaning so if i go over something too fast and something that you really want to know about you can feel free to stop me ask questions and by the way i don't know everything i just simply don't i i don't know everything there is to know about revelation this is probably the third or fourth time i've taught it and every time I teach it, I get something new. It's just the way it is. Sylvia and I have a, we read through the Bible every year. Every day we're reading scripture. And when I first started, what, five or six years ago, I thought, huh, it's interesting. And you just read it, and then you put the Bible down, and you go your way the rest of the day. And you think, and you have to force yourself to remember, what did I read today? What did I read? And now what I'm finding out is, five or six years later, I'm reading the same passages and I'm going, I never noticed that before. And I just read it, you know. Yeah. It's just fascinating. It's just absolutely fascinating. So we're going to be kind of going through Revelation. I don't know how long it's going to take us, but we're not in a hurry probably. And when we get there, we get there. So Revelation is divided naturally into three areas. The things that John saw, and that, that of course means the things that were there uh, during John's life up to that point, or things he knew about that had already occurred. And then the things which, I'm sorry, the things which are affecting John at that moment, and we'll get into that when we look at the, uh, the churches of Revelation, because those churches are the things that were there. Mm -hmm. And that's what Jesus drew John's attention to right from the get-go. It was very fascinating. 
and then the things which must come to pass. So, that basically is a three-part outline of the book of Revelation. And so that's where we're going to be going. And so you can see that much of Revelation deals with this right here. Much of it deals with what's going to happen. And uh, it's interesting because I like to try and keep track of, on my blog I write a lot about eschatology and and I try not to, I try not to look at the world and then take the Bible and make it fit over what's happening in the world. But what is happening in the world seems to be propelling us closer and closer to the time that John describes as things that will come to pass. And we know that that's true in a general sense anyway, because obviously every day brings us closer to the culmination of all things, and one day the Lord's going to return. That to me is absolutely fascinating. Fascinating. Okay, so, any questions on this so far? We're good? Alright. So, a little bit more of a precise outline of Revelation. And this is one of many different outlines. I happen to like this one because this is based on Arnold, Dr. Arnold Fruchtenbaum's book, Footsteps of the Messiah. I don't know if you're familiar with that book. It's about that thick. It was his doctoral thesis. And it's, it's actually a very, very... He's a Messianic Jew, completed Jew, a Jewish man who became a Christian and who deeply, deeply loves the Lord. And so he, he was steeped in Judaism, and it's amazing his perspective on Scripture because of that. And I think sometimes, not that we have to become Jewish, obviously, but I think sometimes we, we lose sight of uh, the Jewishness of the Gospels and the Jewishness of the Scriptures. So the first part, introduction. Chapter 1, 1 to 3, the salutation is 4 through 8. And then the things that John saw is chapter 1, 9 through 20. And then the glorified Son of Man, if we break this section down further, we've got chapter 1, 9 through 11. And you know what's fascinating when we get there? This is absolutely fascinating to me. Here was John, the apostle. The apostle that Jesus loved, right? Who would recline on Jesus' chest. And he just, he loved him. And here was John, seeing the glorified Son of Man. And what is fascinating to me, we'll see when we get there, he falls over almost dead. I mean, isn't that, isn't that incredible? You know, which, which makes me wonder sometimes when I, when I talk to people or hear them say that they're Christian, and they very well could be, I'm not questioning that, but what I question sometimes is the way they talk about Jesus as if he's, yo, J-Man, you know, him and I were tight. It's like, um, okay, you might want to rethink that because honestly, when we see the Lord, you, we all know our noses are going to be on the ground. Yeah, I mean, you know, let's face it. I mean, to be in his presence and yeah, but anyway, so he sees the glorified Son of Man. We see his reaction to it, to him, and uh, then Christ is right there to say, "You know what? Fear not. Fear not." So it's a it's it's pretty enlightening. And then we got the actual revelation that Jesus wants to share, and that's in uh, verses twelve through sixteen, and then the interpretation of what he reveals. And of course, this is all summarized. And then Revelation just 
it opens up and brings it out uh, more so. So then we've got the rest of the outline, which is the things which are. And this is mainly dealing with the churches. And I've read some really interesting, Mark did a, a pretty interesting uh, series. It was on He's, Wednesday night. It was on Wednesday night. He's yeah. done with that, right? Is that correct? I believe so. He's done with that? I think so. And, and he did the churches of Revelation. And there are some really interesting interpretations out there. And um, we'll get into um, my perspective on it. And again, I may be right, I may be wrong. But um, a, lot of it, uh, what, a lot of what Mark said, I absolutely 100% agree with. And it is really interesting because these churches represent John's time. And there's some interesting reasons why he may have chosen those churches too. So anyway, we're dealing with the, the things which are the Ephesus church, the Smyrna church, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. Laodicea. Everybody knows Laodicea. Mm -hmm. Everybody knows Laodicea. Some of the other ones, well, we're familiar with the other ones too, like Philadelphia, etc., uh, etc. Et but Laodicea, it's an interesting one. So, we're going to be talking a little bit about those. And what's interesting about these particular churches, of course, they're, they're right in this horseshoe area right here, Asia Minor. So, and, it, and it's very real, very real, real possible that, that John was associated with these specific churches, possibly as, as pastor of those churches. He certainly knew the people there, and uh, the Lord led him to talk about those churches and reveal things about those churches. So it's, it's really interesting. I've never been over there. Sylvia and I are watching a, um, a series. It's a seven DVD disc set on Revelation. And um, the gentleman who's teaching, and of course, is a Christian, and he's also a cultural anthropologist. And so he does this classroom setting. And then what he does, which makes it really fascinating, he actually goes to these places in person. And he, he's filmed there, and he talks about some of the things that he sees. So it makes it come a little bit more alive, because it's so easy, I think, to look at Scripture and just kind of look at words and not understand what's really going on behind the scenes. So he kind of brings it out more. So we'll be talking about the churches. And then the things which must come to pass. Notice this. This is the bulk of Revelation. And this is the, I won't say the most interesting part, but what is fascinating about it is, it, in my view, it is still in front of us. Still in front of us. Obviously, Jesus has not returned physically yet. And it's always amazing to me when I meet a Christian who doesn't believe that Jesus is coming back physically, but that he's already returned. And usually when they, when they say that, they'll, they'll use 70 AD as the time he returned, but then they say he returned spiritually at that point. Um, and I usually ask them, I said, well, what do you do with uh, Acts 1? You know, where Jesus physically goes up, and you and I would do the exact same thing. If we were talking with Jesus one moment, and then he went up into the sky, we'd be, we'd be looking up after him like this. Yeah. We would just stare until he was taken away in the clouds, and then all of a sudden two guys would come up and say, why are you looking up there? The same Jesus who went that way will return the same way. Mm -hmm. So to me, that's saying Jesus is going to become here physically, and every eye is going to see him. Mm -hmm. And the tribes of the earth will mourn. 
they're going to go. Oh, they're going to they're going to be beside themselves with, you know. Anyway, so the things which must come to pass. That's the bulk of Revelation. And so in verses uh, one through eleven of chapter four, we've got events in heaven preceding the great tribulation. And uh, it was interesting. I was talking to Paul this morning, and and he was Paul Smith, and he was mentioning that he goes, you know, he goes. I just don't understand, um, I may be misquoting him, I'm not trying to, but he was talking about the tribulation and he goes, I don't understand because there are so many Christians throughout the world right now who are suffering. And they are. There are Christians who are literally being killed every, almost daily for their faith in various parts of the world. And for them, it is a form of tribulation. And I would agree with Paul completely. The difference though between what they're suffering and this is what we're going to get into. Because this is a specific period designed by God specifically uh, for the, uh, not for the church age, but for Israel. So we'll, we'll get into that. But notice, 4, 1 through 11 is the events that are in heaven preceding the Great Tribulation. And then we've got the throne of God. We've got the Lamb and the seven-sealed scroll and the significance of that, which mm -hmm. is absolutely fascinating. And then um, we've got, after that, the Great Tribulation, chapters 6, 1 through 18, 24. Some commentators believe that it actually goes to chapter 19 as well. So we'll get into a little bit about that too. And then we've got the first half of the Tribulation, 6, 18 through 24. And then... Uh, the middle of the tribulation, actually I think I've got a misprint right there, but the middle of the tribulation is uh, chapter 10, 1 through 11. Mm -hmm. And then the second half is 15 through 18, 24. Yeah, that's definitely a misprint. I think that's supposed to be chapter 9. Mm -hmm. And the second coming and the aftermath is almost as exciting as what happens before mm -hmm. the tribulation. The second coming in the aftermath is in chapter 19, verse 1 to 20, verse 3. And then you've got the Messianic kingdom. And when I look at Revelation, there, there's so much there as far as the specificity of the days. Mm -hmm. Like after the tribulation, before the uh, Messianic kingdom starts, there's like 75 days. And you sit there and you go, what are those days used for? It's just fascinating when you think about all the stuff that's happening and, you know, all the judgments and everything else. And then the aftermath of the kingdom, and then we've got the eternal order, which is what you and I are looking forward to one day. What we're looking forward to. When we will have our, by then we will certainly have our glorified bodies. So I won't be fighting with my weight anymore. Uh, I will have probably a full head of hair. No like glasses. I used to. No glasses. I won't get tired ever. <laughs> it's funny. And then, uh, then the conclusion. So this is the outline of the book of Revelation that we're going to be working into. And, uh, and we'll break it down as much as we can. So a couple more things. There are no direct quotes, which I find very interesting. There are no direct quotes in the book of Revelation, from the Old Testament. There are a lot of implications. There are 550 references to the Old Testament, but no direct quotes. 
And only the last two chapters of Revelation deal with anything new in Scripture. Isn't that fascinating? Just the last two chapters. The rest of it, the rest of it is in Scripture someplace. And which is what I find fascinating. When you read the book of Joel, for instance, what is it, three chapters? It, it's dealing with the second part of the tribulation. It's just, it's just, you know, you go, wow, why did God have Joel write about the second half of the tribulation? I don't know. But he did. And it's there for us. It's fascinating. So the value of the book of Revelation is that it takes all the scattered Old Testament prophecies and it puts them in some type of chronological order, which is absolutely wonderful for us. Because we can read Revelation and we can understand a very, it's, it's almost, it's specific to, a, to an extent, but it's a generalized chronological order that does not appear in the Old Testament because you've got all these little books. You've got Joel, you've got Zechariah, you've got this book, you've got Habakkuk, you've got, and they all pick a perspective. They all point out something. For instance, if we didn't have the book of Daniel, we would not know what the times of the Gentiles were. Because we would get to Paul talking about the times of the Gentiles, and we go, huh? What's that? Well, we can look back to the book of Daniel and know exactly where he gets that from. We can also know, by the way, in the book of Daniel, what event kicks off the coming tribulation, which isn't really specified in the book of Revelation. It's implied, it's kind of pointed to, but Daniel is very specific in chapter 9, verses 24 to 27, about the event that kicks off the tribulation. Still doesn't tell us when, as far as time goes. When is it going to happen in the future? We don't know. But we know when that event happens, that's the beginning of the tribulation, mm -hmm. if we're here to see it. So, this is the value of the book of Revelation. It takes all this stuff, all these things from the Old Testament, and it puts them in one book for us. And I love the fact that God directed his servants over the years when he compiled this to put Revelation at the end. It, it closes the book. Mm -hmm. And it's just fascinating the way that works. So the first chapter is extremely important. They all are. But this obviously sets the tone. The things that John saw. And let's look at this. Yeah. If you don't mind, let me read a little bit of this. Um, I'm reading from the New King James Version, and I like different different uh, versions, but I've really grown fond of the New King James Version. But if you have something else, that's okay too, no worries. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants. Right there, we're hearing that Jesus, this is the pattern, right? God the Father gives it to Jesus, who gives it and shows it to us, his servants. Amen. There is such a pageantry and order in the heavens. And, and that's what I love about the book of Revelation. Because there is such pageantry. There is such precision about God, the way he reveals things. Things which must shortly take place. And we're going to talk about that word shortly in just a minute. You can underline it if you prefer, or just make a note. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, to all things 
that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it for the time is near. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler over the kings of the earth. To him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him, even so, amen. Now, what's fascinating about verse 7 is Jesus himself used almost that same verbiage in the Olivet Discourse, which was in Matthew 24, Mark 13, and Luke 21. So Jesus, remember when he was talking to his disciples and they started off with a question that said, you know, when, when are you coming? What's the sign? And when is all this going to happen? And Jesus said, well, and he didn't answer all the questions, or he didn't at least answer them in order. But he basically came around to the point of saying, you know what, at this time there will be the sign of the coming of the Son of Man in the sky, and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. I can imagine. You know, it's so funny, Mark was alluding to the fact that in life today, um, there are a lot of things to be concerned with right now, you know? And, but I love what he said. God's got it. God's going to deal with it. God's taking care of it. And our job is to turn to him and have the same kind of faith that Abraham had, knowing God's going to do it. So I don't want gas prices to go up to five or six bucks a gallon. But maybe that's why he gave me a part-time job. <laughs> so I can afford gas. Who knows, you know? But um, it doesn't really matter. Really, right? It doesn't really matter. Um, so anyway, here he is. He's coming in the clouds. These are the, these are the words that, that John heard and he reported. And then in verse 8, this is Jesus, of course, speaking. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come. Makes you think of, I am. Never changing. So here is John now telling about how he came upon this. You recall, I'm sure, that he was, he was uh, basically put on the Isle of Patmos. He's an older man. And uh, he was put there as punishment. You got to go to Patmos. You can work it off there. And here's John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ. And of course, that word tribulation is different than the tribulation that we're going to get into later. This is simply a, a, a Greek word that means troubles, trials, problems that we all face. That we all face. And um, so he was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, 
and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet say, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches. By the way, the, the seven churches. <clears throat> it's definitive. It's a definitive article there. Um, he didn't just say, write it to seven churches. He said, the seven churches. That's important. To Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Now, I always wonder, isn't it interesting that Jesus appears behind John? Isn't that fascinating? Yeah. And I'm thinking he did that uh, because he knew John's frail position. I mean, really. John was not a young man at this point. He didn't want to scare him. He was being very gentle with him. And he turned to see the voice that spoke with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. There's your symbology. We'll get to that. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet, and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. Write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. The mystery of the seven stars. See, this is great. So we were introduced to the seven stars that he's holding, right? And then in verse 20, we get the explanation. The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands. Well, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. So right there, we've got some symbolism, and it's explained right in the passage. Now, commentators do not agree on which, what's new. Right? Um, there, some believe that the angels literally are angels um, representing those churches or who are given the charge to protect those churches. Other commentators believe that the angels may be a reference to the specific pastor's of those churches and if John had been a pastor of those churches he wasn't now so we don't really know for sure but either one works um, I like to think that they're actually angels of seven churches they're sent to protect the believers and the churches themselves but we don't really know the seven lampstands are the seven churches so Jesus is setting up this picture for John he's saying look I've got I've got these this lampstand here and these seven churches are represented by a lampstand each. And now I'm going to start telling you about these churches and um, what may happen to them if they don't correct their behavior 
or for those who don't need to correct their behavior. So it's really a fascinating thing. And before we get into this, um, the other thing I want to point out is, as far as the churches go, it's really interesting. I think Harry, Dr. Harry Ironside was possibly one of the first to come up with this idea that the seven churches obviously were very real churches. They were literal churches. And they each represented something. And Jesus breaks that down in his individual letters to those churches. And remember, Jesus is basically telling John, look, you're the secretary right now in what I'm saying. And then you make sure that this gets to these churches. And I think it was Harry Ironside who basically came up with this idea, or someone along his line, came up with the idea that each of these churches, not only were they a literal church, but they represented a specific period in church history. And um, that's kind of where I lean as well. Uh, it's not crucial, but it just, to me, when I do that, those passages make a little bit more sense to me. But certainly you're under no obligation to do that as well. So the thing that John saw was a revelation of Jesus Christ, all in the first chapter we read. And honestly, the book of Revelation is best described as the crowning book of all prophecy, because it ties everything together. The angels play a dominant role in Revelation. It's fascinating when you read through the book of Revelation and you think about, oh, there's an angel doing something. Look at those angels. They're flying through the heavens going, the first woe is past. Two more are coming. And then another time they'll be going, you know, basically, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. I mean, they're actually witnessing to the people of the earth. So they play a huge role in the book of Revelation. And not just in what they're witnessing, and it's what they're doing. Carrying out these prophecies, which is really fascinating. You know, wouldn't it be fascinating, I, although maybe it wouldn't be fascinating, to be able to see what's going on behind the curtain sometimes. <laughs> I'm not sure it would be a good idea, but maybe. I mean, think about Elijah, or excuse me, Elisha, uh, when he says, when he prays that the young man with him would he was so worried about what was going to happen and Elisha prayed and said, Lord, open his eyes and all of a sudden he could see multitudes of angelic beings all dressed for war. Mm. And you know, sometimes I'm not sure we mm. are really that aware of what's going on in the spiritual realms. Maybe it's good that we aren't, but there's a lot of activity. There's an absolute lot of activity. A lot of activity. And there has to be because God is a busy God and he has a program. And it's, it's being unveiled and unrolled. So angels play a dominant role. And what's nice about the book of Revelation is that we see more of that. We see a lot of that, or I should say, we see some of that in the book of Daniel as well, which is also very fascinating. Yeah. Verse 1, the word shortly, as I mentioned, I said, hang on to that word. Because in that verse, which shortly must shortly take place, it doesn't literally mean it's going to happen in a few seconds. It literally means once the day of the fulfillment starts to happen, then it's just going to unroll. Okay? So we're still waiting for that. We're still waiting. It's still building to that point. So once it starts to happen, there's going to be no delay in its execution. Nothing's going to stop it once it starts. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's the whole point, I think, that, mm -hmm. that the Lord is making here. And it doesn't necessarily mean soon. Um, you've heard the word imminent 
like for instance, you'll hear people talk about the rapture. We'll we'll get into this a little bit, but that the rapture isn't really necessarily discussed. It's implied, I think, in the book of Revelation, but it's not really discussed as Paul discusses it. But anyway, uh, the word soon is not what shortly means. The word imminent doesn't necessarily mean soon either. It means it could happen at any moment. So the best way I can explain that, and I'll touch on this again, is if uh, Pastor Mark was just out, just outside that door, and he was talking with someone, and I said, you know, Pastor Mark will be in here any moment. What that means is he can walk through that door any minute, but it doesn't mean he's going to walk in in the next second. It could take him two minutes, five minutes. He may have a really in-depth conversation. They may have to go back to his office. Then eventually he'll come in. But he's on the. It's the same with Christ. He's on the other side of the spiritual curtain, and when he gets the signal from the Father, that's when. He comes. So, it doesn't mean soon. has nothing to do with time necessarily. Not our time, at least. So, verse 3. I love this. It places the obligation on the believer. Chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it for the time is near. Again, there's this spiritual curtain on the other side well, if we stop to think about it, I'm sure there's spiritual activity going on all the time around us. We just, we aren't aware of it. But that is, that is a promise to us. We're blessed when we read and hear the words of the book of Revelation, which John calls the prophecy, and keeps the things which are written in it. The time is near. So, you know, when you when you hear, you've heard the old joke about, well, I'm a pan-tribulationist, it's all going to pan out of me. Because, and, and that's the excuse people use for not wanting to study. Because it doesn't make any sense to them. So they don't study, they, they kind of avoid it. Yeah, it'll work out, I don't need. And in a sense, that's true, because we can sit here and go, well, I want to know everything there is to know about Revelation, but if it doesn't make us uh, if it doesn't impact our lives and make us want to live for Christ that much more, then it's really not doing it. We're not approaching right. it the correct way. Yeah. Okay. So, places the obligation and the promise on us, and the, it is the only book in the Bible, which I also find fascinating, that promises a blessing to those who study. So for the life of me, I don't understand why people don't study. Yeah. It doesn't mean it has to be all-consuming and that's the only thing you study, but... I personally believe that if uh, we have a correct perspective about eschatology, as God has revealed it through his word, honestly, I think that helps us live a better life. Because my focus then becomes on Christ, on his provision, on his plan. I want to be part of that plan. Um, I want to be mindful of him. And so the more I read and study eschatology, the more it reminds me that this life is not it. This isn't it. This is, this is where I am now. And, uh, you know, it's, when, I, I can't even imagine. I mean, yeah, I guess I could try to imagine what it's going to be like when I get there. But can we really appreciate it? Anyway, all right. Uh, studying prophecy gives a person a love and longing for the return of the Messiah. And, and people have accused 
people like us or me, because we like to study eschatology, of escapism. Well, you know what? I look at it like this. Every day, and, and people have said that about the rapture too. Well, you're just hoping it's an escape clause, the rapture. It's like, well, yeah, but the way I look at it is I have no idea when I'm going to die. I have no clue. I could go to, I've told my wife I'm dying first. <laughs> she can't, I have to die first. She can't do that because I'd miss her too much. But, you know, and I'd wander around banging into walls and stuff. But, you know, the reality is I don't know when I'm going to die. No clue. Now, I know even if I die, I'm still going to participate in the rapture, but I may die before the rapture. So, how is the rapture an escape clause? Death is the escape clause. It gets me from this life to the eternal life, where my sister already is, where my mother is, where hopefully my father is, where other people I know are, where Christ is. You know? You see through a glass darkly. Sometimes... It's not only seems like a dark glass, it seems like it's completely opaque. It's just hard sometimes, isn't it? So studying prophecy gets my mind focused where it should be. And that's on Christ and his plan and what he's doing. Believers who look forward to Christ's second coming will receive a special crown. And that's true. We know that from Paul's writings. That we're looking forward to his return. You know, and when I know that I'm focused on Christ's return and what life is going to be like, then my my mind becomes more focused on my purpose here. And so as I drive a bus and I have little children to deal with, <laughs> one particular one, I think she's in first grade, Mr. Bus Driver, I think I'm going to be sick. Okay. You need to go sit down. Mr. Bus Driver, I have to go to the bathroom. <laughs> we don't have a bathroom on the bus, honey. What would you like me to do? I'll hold it. Okay, good. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Bus Driver, can I get off next? No, I'm sorry. We have to do everything in order. It's just, you know, and, and God gives you the grace and the patience <laughs> to just reach out to these little children, these little people, and love them, and not be bored with them, and not be frustrated with their little question. <laughs> Mr. Bus Driver, am I bleeding? <laughs> I don't know, I can't look because I have to drive right now. <laughs> anyway, so we will be receiving a special crown. I want to, when I see him, I want to know, I want him to know, and to know that he knew I knew that I was looking forward to seeing him. Yeah. So this is a conditional blessing. It only applies to the Christians who are absolutely looking forward to his second coming. And what I think is fascinating about Revelation is when you get to the end of the book and he returns, he's on the white horse. And then you see all the people on horses behind him. You know, when John was writing this, he saw us. We were, we were in that group on a horse. Not that we need to, I mean, we're just coming along for the ride because Christ is doing everything, but we are there with him. That to me is a hundred, I mean, that's so fascinating that John saw that. That John saw that. And that's another thing. You know when, um, 
when Jesus was talking just before the transfiguration and he was talking about that some would not die until they saw him coming into his kingdom, right? I'm paraphrasing. And they're like, the disciples are like, what do you mean they're not going to die? Well, who, what is it to you this person remains until I come? Now that's, he was using uh, hyperbole there. But what's fascinating to me is, John was one of the people he was talking to then, and then the transfiguration happens, right? No. But look here, in the book of Revelation, what did John see? John saw everything played out, and John saw Jesus coming to this earth and setting up that kingdom. He saw it all from the perspective of heaven. So he wasn't dead. He lived to see that, and then he will live to participate in it eternally. So this is a conditional blessing. We must study and look forward to his return. And there is a way that you can become so heavenly-minded that you're no earthly good when your thoughts are always on you. But in this case, we're looking forward to his return and all that means. That's, that's a huge, huge thing. The reason, and so much of the revelation, by the way, is based on, as I mentioned, the Old Testament. So if you're going to study the book of Revelation, you're going to be all over the Bible because there's so much it's pulled from. And verse 3, the word keep means to watch. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear or the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it. So does somebody else have a different translation? Mine says King keep. James? Oh. What? Mine says keep. You said, yours says keep too? Okay. Well, in the original, it literally means to watch for those things which are written. Literally, it's telling us we need to keep our eyes peeled. We need to keep our eyes peeled. Okay, so verse 4a states who the book is being written to. And it's the first part of this is being written to the churches of Asia, the seven churches, definitive article. John uses the definite article, the, indicating totality. So, the seven churches. So it's really fascinating here. And it says, history shows that there were more than just seven churches in Asia. That makes yeah. sense. You had Colossae, you had, they're all over. But there were those seven churches that Christ wanted to include here. And, and I think it makes sense to me that he included those churches because they had all different character. And if what Ironside and others believe is true, that they all could very well represent a different period within the church age. And so John likely had a connection oops, to each of the church, possibly as a pastor, if not a pastor and elder. All right. So, this is where we get into this a little bit more, and I kind of got ahead of myself and mentioned this. The seven churches were literal churches. They all had literal people, real people in them. They all had a pastor or a traveling pastor. Um, the number seven, as you know, in Scripture means completeness. I'm sure that's why Jesus chose seven churches, not six, seven, not eight, seven. The message, though, which is fascinating to me because the more I've studied the seven churches here, it really does seem to fit into different segments of church history from the beginning of the church to present day. And every message to those seven churches really applies to all the entire church. All of them. 
I'm sure, well, I shouldn't say I'm sure, some of you may have been in this church forever, but Sylvia and I have been in churches where they started out great. And then after a year or two, you sit there going, something's wrong. And then you finally realize what it is. And I remember one church we were in, um, we finally, I had to talk to the pastor and about a couple of concerns we had, and we were kind of poo-pooed and put off, and that's okay. And then um, eventually I, would, I just said, you know, I think we just need to leave find something else, which is what we did. And, you know, that happens. Because churches, no matter, they're, they're, by, they're started by people, and they're run by people, and people have their own ideas, and it's easy enough in our daily lives to not do what God wants us to do. How much easier sometimes is it for an entire church to maybe go the wrong path and not even realize they're going that way until then, until too much time has passed. Um, so it's possible, as I mentioned, that each church represents a period of time since the birth of the church till today. And, and I like that interpretation because I think it, it seems to fit. And I could probably do two or three lessons on just that um, and maybe we'll touch on it a little bit. But it is not at all critical to understanding Revelation. So if, if that is not your particular viewpoint, that's okay. No worries. doesn't matter. All right. Verses five, 4b and 5a. All right. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth. And I, you know, I often think of that. And I think of the leaders that exist today. And I think to myself, you know, most of them are not even aware that there is a king who rules over them. They think they rule. But God rules over them. He gets what he wants done regardless of what they think. So John is the secondary author. Obviously, Jesus Christ is the primary one. The Holy Spirit is described as the seven spirits that are before his throne. So those seven spirits there, that is usually, in my text, the word spirits is capitalized. That's the Holy Spirit, and um, it's represented by that when he's before the throne. And of course, we're never going to see the Holy Spirit We'll see his glory. We'll see God's glory. We'll see Jesus Christ. And we'll, it'll just be, can you imagine you'll be in heaven one day and you'll just look over there and you'll just see our Lord. And you'll just drink him in. And he'll look at you and he will drink you in. And I, I can't imagine that. I can't imagine that. But that's the way it's going to be. And there will be plenty of time for him to deal with every person, to give them the time they need. So the definitive article, or the definite article, is used here again. The spirits signifies totality and completeness. And you can yes. jot this down, look it up later if you'd like. Isaiah 11:2 discusses the attributes of the Holy Spirit. And that's, I think, where John got that. Don't forget. I'm sure you don't forget, but. These people were steeped in Judaism and the scriptures. So they knew, you know. And for them to, 
I think it's also fascinating when Jesus quoted scripture, especially to Satan, he never said, hey, it's written in this book and this chapter. He just quoted scripture. So that's the way they did things. Then. So verses 5b to 6, John praises the Son. First, he loved us. Second, he loosed us from our sins by his blood. Doesn't feel like that sometimes, though, does it? Sure does. Because I still have to deal with me. Third, he made us to be a kingdom. And fourth, he made us to be priests unto God the Father. And fifth, to him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. We're still on the introduction. Sorry. Salutation. Verse 7 is the theme of Revelation. Behold, he is coming with clouds, or in the clouds. And every eye will see him, even they who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. So the theme of Revelation is that whole verse. He's coming again. Period. He is coming again. Imagine being alive when he comes and realizing in an instant that you never believed he existed. That's a scary thought. The second coming of the Messiah, the return of Jesus to this earth, is the central theme of Revelation. And it deals with the events leading up to his second coming, accompanying his return, following the second coming. So it deals with those three things. That's what the book of Revelation is revealing to us. Everything that leads up to the second coming, start of the tribulation. The 21 judgments, the seven bowls, the seven trumpets, the seven seals. And then the end of the tribulation, which is when he returns. He ends the tribulation. And then what happens after he comes back? Verses 9 through 20 make up the first major section of what John sees in Revelation. 9 through 20, I won't read those again. But that's the vision of the Son of Man. He saw the glorified Son of Man. Uh, in the daily reading, we were just—I was just reading. Uh, what was it? Exodus—the uh, Exodus, part where uh, Moses is really in fellowship with God, and he is already in relationship with God. He's already speaking with Him as a man speaks to a man, or a woman speaks to a woman, or whatever. And then He says to God, "Show me Your glory." And what's fascinating about that is God knew, okay, well, I will show you my glory, but you're only going to be able to see my back. Because if you saw my face, it would kill you because of our sin. Now, it's fascinating because here was God dealing with Moses, who was a sinful person. But God still dealt with him as a man speaks to a man person speaks to a person, and yet Moses wanted more of God. Yeah. He wanted more of God. And honestly, I would be happy sometimes with just hearing God's voice occasionally. But then again, how would we know? Right? It's probably best we don't go there. But we'll get there one day. So this section divides into three subsections. 
Verses 9 through 11 are the introduction given to John. The Lord's Day in Greek is an adjective. So when he goes, uh, where are we? Uh, um. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, verse 10. So that's an adjective, not a noun, in that particular use of the Greek. So it means it was a day in which John was enraptured with prophetic and divine ecstasy, and it was during that time that he received a divine revelation. So who brought that about? Obviously God. Obviously God. John was, I'm sure, praying, praising, spending time thinking about his Lord and Savior, and what it all meant. I'm on the island of Patmos, exiled here, having to work hard labor, but I'm going to take time to think about you, Lord, to trust your provision. And it was during that time, the same thing happened with Daniel, right? It was during that time that he receives this prophetic vision. Verses 12 through 16 are actually things that John saw. He saw Jesus as the glorified Son of Man. I can't even begin to imagine what that was like. He describes him using figures from the Old Testament, which is very fascinating. All right, that is what I've got today. Are there any questions? I know that seemed kind of long in the introduction, but we needed to get the kind of the groundwork laid. Very good. You had told me once you lay it out, you make more sense of it. It starts like a little clip. Okay. Just a beginning. Good. The, bulb, the light bulb came on. Okay. Very good. <laughs> I'm looking forward. Yeah, sometimes the light bulb goes on with me too. That's good. <laughs>